Hey listeners, JNP here. I'm really happy to tell you that this episode marks the beginning of a new chapter for modern media. I've got a new partner, um, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Leanne Goins. Hey everyone. So let's try the intro with the two of us. Okay. From the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP. And I'm Leanne Goins, and this is Modern Media. Cool, I like it better already. So let's get right to it. I, uh, I recently watched the four-part series from Ava DuVernay on Netflix, When They See Us, which is about the rush to judgment in the wake of the assault and rape of Trisha Miley, um, who was a 28-year-old white woman who was jogging in Central Park on April 19, 1989. Um, and there were other attacks on eight other people that evening. Um, the case came to be known uh, as a Central Park jogger case or the Central Park Five case once the police had arrested and charged the five young black and brown boys, all under 16, by the way, or 16 and under. The five, so the story goes, eventually confessed to crimes against Trisha Miley and were convicted uh, at trial and sentenced to prison. Mm-hmm. For years, of course, the story went that the boys, or for some crazed animals, had been part of a larger group of around 30 kids. Not kids out having fun, but kids who were wilding in the park. The very concept of wilding, it turns out, was a media construction, a fabrication, a lie. And speaking of media constructions, at the height of the case on May 1st, our current President Donald Trump, of course, famously took out a full-page ad. The ad ran in all four New York City newspapers and called for a return of the death penalty, the death penalty for the five young boys. Hmm. And that that letter itself, of course, is an object lesson in some sort of nostalgic construction of a New York City that mostly existed in glossy media representations of bike rides at dawn and leisurely strolls in the park, and is itself a deeply troubling representation of its own, you know, lashing out at these, quote, roving bands of wild criminals and crazed misfits. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the stories the newspapers and television news media told us about that night and about the young boys convicted of the crimes that many of us tacitly accepted as true were wrong. The boys, in fact, did not commit those acts. They were and are innocent. Their eventual exoneration, however, doesn't erase what happened to them. The lack of care taken with their lives, the abandonment of journalism or journalistic integrity, the inherent racism woven within the coverage. And I think that's what DuVernay's series is at least in part about. A careful revealing, a pulling back of the veil that demonstrates the overt and subtle racism within the system and within the news media. From the racist narrative of how they were targeted, how they were convicted, to how easy it was for so many of us to believe, without question or doubt, their guilt and deserved punishment. DuVernay's retelling offers, in some ways, a counter-narrative. As someone who's done a lot of thinking about crime dramas on television, I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) Check it out. I was struck at how uh, DuVernay's use of standard cop show and legal show tropes um, then get turned on their heads. So let's take a listen to a scene where Linda Fairstein, played by Felicity Huffman, uh, the head of the sex crimes unit at the DA's office, instructs detectives on the importance of getting confessions from the kids. We've got suspects. We've got kids in custody. Interrogate. Make them name their accomplices. This is not business as usual. The press is crawling all over this. No kid gloves here. These are not kids. They raped this woman. Our lady jogger deserves this. 
Wait, not him. It's Kevin Richardson. He's only 14. His mother felt sick, so she left. Needed her medication. The mother left voluntarily? Is it snowing? <laughs> what? It suddenly feels like Christmas. So it's pretty standard cop show stuff. We know we've got the perps. Now we go get the confession. This is where the hero stuff would come in. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is where we often see ethical dilemmas play out. How far is too far? Even if we get it right, et cetera. But here, DuVernay shows that trope for what it is in this case. And it's a license to do whatever it takes, even if you're wrong. So in essence, she redacts the heroics and rewrites the scripts to highlight the racism at the heart of the narrative that the police and prosecutors were willing to tell even themselves. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about today. We're writing the script through counter-narratives. To do that, we spoke with multimedia artist Alexandra Bell. Alexandra is the artist behind a series called Counter-Narratives that's gotten a lot of much-deserved attention, especially in New York, where she's based. She's being featured in The New Yorker and The New York Times. You can check out those features on our website. But her work is also making its way across the country, in California, in Ohio, and even here in... Greencastle, well, almost. And maybe we'll talk about that later. So in case you haven't seen her work yet, and you should by all means check it out, Counter Narratives focuses on the way that major news outlets like the New York Times easily fall into racist tropes in the way they write headlines, the photos they choose, even the way they lay out the page. She's done pieces dealing with the widely known cases like Michael Brown, Loctigate, or the U.S. men's Olympic swimming team debacle, and the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, as well as lesser known cases of racial violence covered in the New York Times. The work is large, designed to be mounted outside in public spaces, on walls in the city where people can encounter it, engage with it in ways that are more direct perhaps than the sort of rarefied space of the museum. We recorded our interview back in November of last year when she visited us here at DePauw. At the time, she was just finishing up work on a new installment of the series dealing with, guess what, the Central Park jogger case. And I started with a question to her about just what a counter-narrative is. Yes, um, it is a narrative that goes against or challenges a kind of dominant, a dominant narrative, a dominant story about a particular thing. Okay. So Yeah. It, it's a pushback. It's a pushback. It's a pushback to a dominant narrative. So, I mean, in this particular instance, we've talked about, I mean, a dominant narrative, for instance, is Columbus discovered America. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a false narrative as far as <laughs> right. I'm concerned. But a, he did not. But, but, a, <laughs> but a counter-narrative, which, you know, I mean, this may be an extreme example of one, is there's a, that the Native Americans were already here, so he didn't discover it, right? Yeah, okay. They, they, they probably discovered it, yeah. Okay, so challenging, challenging these dominant narratives mm-hmm. that have animated our history, our political understanding, mm-hmm. our social being, um, and challenging those uh, in ways that um, offer new opportunities and new frameworks for understanding. Absolutely. I mean, the thinking with a dominant narrative is that, in, at least in, I'll, I'll speak in American t- context, but I guess it could be applied globally, right, is that there's a, not a, a narrative that's been set forth by the dominating class um, and white folk, if mm-hmm. you think about mm-hmm. it, kind of um, the context that my work thinks about considers kind of modern kind of media um, that's been set of narratives that have been constructed in journalism, which institutionally is kind of led by white people, um, and that the work that I do 
push us back on some of those constructions. Um, and so that's a it's another way of kind of mm-hmm. thinking of counter narrative. I'm I'm wondering if as we're having this conversation about counter narratives and dominant frames, white centric frames, if you um, if you might be able to contextualize for us what these dominant frames look like in terms of code words or in terms of like specific language or coded language um, that you see happening in media and the the way in which your work um, clearly and explicitly challenges this. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the ways that I see it, I don't explicitly challenge it, but I okay. see it. Right? Okay. Um, one of the things that's kind of harder to talk about the counter narrative series, there's only about maybe four or five works. And so the thinking is, if it's that bad, you should have like a, there should be tons of these, right? And we have to remind ourselves of that, have to remind people that counter narrative is also a visual project. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if there isn't something that I can actually transform in a way that's creative or interesting, I, I don't do a counter narrative. Right. Um, and so that means there are all these other opportunities to point something out about the news mm-hmm. where it's not part of the, the this kind of art series. And, you know, some of that dominating language that you were asking about, we can talk about the kind of migrant caravan, these kind of this kind of colorful language sometimes. Um, and I think another one is like droves of people or whenever we're talking yeah. about people as a the um a tsunami of people or mm-hmm. like um hordes of people, there's there those types of words to me are part of things that I would flag as kind of dominating language that oftentimes is applied to one set of people and not another, you know. Um, We often think of or hear that when people talk about maybe um, white immigrants, they're thought of as pioneers or people Mm -hmm. who set forth for a better life, right? Yeah. Um, And then we contextualize maybe um, people coming to America from Mexico as kind of a, a threat or mm-hmm. hordes, if we think about some of the recent mm-hmm. um, news that we've seen, or either some of the um, these new ads, right? Um, there's something about it that's a, a bit more demonic. So it's a mix of things mm-hmm. between photography and language, um, a lot of the visual imagery. To it's just sheer dominance mm-hmm. in the um, in the news, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there there are a bunch of different ways it happens. So that also leads to a question for me about design. So you know, you talked about your, the visual, the visuality of your work, um, and it's not just about words, but it's also about um, the way pages are put together. The way. Um, so how much of of what you do is about the design of, say, the New York Times and the way they lay out a page and the kind of decisions they make there visually? Yeah, a lot of it. I, I the work overall, because I'm not really, as much as I'm pulling out individual articles, I'm not that interested in the individual aspects of the mm-hmm. article. I'm more interested in frameworks. Um, and I think a narrative is built up of all of those things. It, it, there's a framework. And so um, the total appearance of something is very critical to my work. I mean, although I'm, I am pulling out a particular piece, so you may not see what the entire page looks like, um, but you will see what I'm questioning in the one, in this one moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, that's super critical to me, in part as, as a tool for people learn, to learn and understand it. I think it has to be simplified in that sense. You have to be able to see um, the layout, and then they're guided through the changes that I'm going to make. And so frameworks. I always try to kind of keep that word in play um, because I think it's easy for people to get caught up on smaller things like a word usage here, misplaced things here. And I think those things are critical as well 
But every time I find a word that I don't like doesn't mean it's going to be a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I think that I haven't figured out what that is yet. I'm holding on to those moments where I see a misplaced word or something's funky that I don't have the tools to create a different version of it. Um, But yeah, it's the framework is critical. All of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talking about the work in terms of frameworks builds a whole new set of ideas in there. It makes me think of the idea of a discursive framework, or what I would call the rules of the game. What are the frameworks by which anything, even an object, is understood to be something, and to have a certain use value? And that's the way we treat ourselves and each other. And so the news media become a kind of framework for understanding and for assigning meaning to things and to people. The question for me always is, how are you trying to get me to look at something? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you presenting something to me? Mm -hmm. Right? And so then it becomes just as much about a headline as it does a photo placement, as it does um, a turn of phrase, um, how you label someone. I think if you tell me there are waves or droves of people coming here, that to me feels like a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and or if you told me that there are people who are pioneering and I'm, I'm thinking they're going to be useful and resourceful and build mm-hmm. things and um, and so there's a different there's a different way and yeah. I think people who who are part of the journalism community who work in papers, I think they know better as well, but I think sometimes they get stuck. <laughs> trying to help help unstick them. I I think that's that's a really generous way uh, of thinking about (laughs) it, that that they got stuck. So we're talking a little bit more about um, Alexandra's work entitled, her current work entitled, No Humans Involved After Sylvia Winter. And so this is the current piece that's dealing specifically with the Central Park Jocker case. And within it, Alexandra is talking about and asking us to consider the pathologized racialize the explicitly and implicitly racist dis- discourse, right? The discursive work, the discursive frameworks that were bound within the media that we heard over and over and over again. The wolf pack, the wolf pack praise, etc. And within her work, she shifts, reveals, and challenges the ways that the news media is not only complicit in the maintenance of these racist frames, but the ways that we are also complicit in reading, engaging with, and beginning to see five young boys as subhuman, as inhuman, as rapists, and as deserving of the death penalty. Um, The Central Park Five is is, is an interesting thing because I've been working on it for a a bit of time, and Mm -hmm. it's it's been some months now. It's been since earlier this year, and there's several iterations of it, or at least, you know, there's a way I thought I was going to handle it first, and now I'm not handling it that way. Um, Because it became clear to me that there is a different way that you have to handle explicit Mm -hmm. racism, I I guess, in the news. Um, And it's part of why... I rely on so many pages because I could probably make my point with the first front page that's like Wolfpack's Prey and just kind of close it out. Um, But there's something about the repetition Mm -hmm. of that. Um, 
And so I'm juxtaposing even this like really kind of heavy over the top racial language with also the frequency with which they covered the story, right? And so that to me, that particular part, right, the repetition of the the piece, right? There's several pages, I think I mean I'm still working on it now, but um, ultimately, there'll be about 28 pages, and 28 pages in a 10-day span. And they're pages that I didn't include. Wow. That's a lot of coverage. Yeah. And it's a lot of coverage for a, a crime where they think they got the guy. So it's kind of like, why are we still, what is the importance of this particular repetition of this narrative? Um, and so on one hand, that represents kind of this really kind of obvious racialized framework, right? Wolfpack's prey, wilding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even one article where the cop looks in on the kids, and this is after they gave their confessions, and I'm doing the air quotes mm-hmm. here. Um, um, and he says, you know, they're they're finally sleeping, and he feels as though they finally look guilty. And then he looks in and he says, wow, humans. And it's like it's the first time it's dawned on him that these might be people. Um, And so there are those instances that are just super, super, um, they feel super racialized. And then there's um, the coverage, the amount of coverage, the the decision to run the photo, which I think we're still really well acquainted mm-hmm. with, right? Whose mm-hmm. picture makes the cover, right? And so I can make a connection between the decision to maybe run that photo and the reliance on Usain Bolt's picture and Olympic threat, right? And so I think that those connections are there. Um, what makes the front cover versus front page versus what's inside? Um, I think that there's a, there are links. Um, I decided with that series, I would just highlight the really racist mm-hmm. stuff. So we decided, you know, after we did the photo litho, because the, the prints are photo litho, the screen print top. Um, the screen print layer um, is the highlight and the blackout. So I really was interested in really focusing people in on the language. And so we covered up a number of the, we covered up the images, we covered up the ads, and we left just a lot of the language plain. And I mm-hmm. want people to imagine when you get to the end, which it ends with the Trump ad, right? And so that has yeah. a lot of significance for me in that that work in part because it's the one page I don't touch. So I'm always finagling with something or marking it up, and it's the one thing where I'm just like, this is very clearly what it is. You need no guides, you need no highlights, you, you don't need any stickers. But it also is the through line to today. Mm-hmm. And at first I didn't think about that. I was just like, and, I, and sometimes I'm upset because he gets so much attention. He gets so much attention. Like, that's the page everyone, yeah. I saw your Central Park Five, and they take that photo, and I'm like, ah. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that it verifies something about where we are now. So I got to wondering about the very notion of objectivity which is our go-to word that helps us assess whether or not a journalist can be trusted, how well they balance different sides of the story, you know, and how it plays out in the writing and even the physical layout of the publication, the placement on the page, the photographs that go along with the story, etc. One of Alexander's most notable pieces, the one that seems to get the most attention, is called A Teenager with Promise. And it's a reworking of two front-page stories that ran in the New York Times on August 25, 2014. The two stories ran side by side under a larger headline that brought them together, and it said, Two Lives at a Crossroads in Ferguson. One of the stories focused on the officer, Darren Wilson, with the subheadline, A Low Profile Officer with Unsettled Early Days. The other article featured Michael Brown with the subheadline, A Teenager Grappling with Problems and Promise. What Alexandra did, and you can see this on her website, was to completely reimagine both the language and the layout of the stories, shifting the focus entirely to Michael Brown, 
using a large image of him in his high school graduation regalia and removing any language that positioned him as a threat. I asked her about her thinking about objectivity that led to that piece and the series in general. Yeah, there's a sometimes a dangerous level of like sameness. Like oh, we just treat everything the same. We're fine. We're clear mm-hmm. of any wrongdoing. We can't see the differences in, in a thing, and we and we don't want there to be some favoritism. And I, that bothers me about journalism because there are reasons to look at something differently. There's reason to report on a subject differently. Um, and I think the inability to do that is some of what led to that that mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that I think that's it. Like, they, oh, they tripped up and they ended up in the yeah, situation no. because I don't think that, one, I think if Michael Brown were white, he wouldn't even be dead. So that's one thing. Yeah. He probably wouldn't right. be a topic. Um, but you rarely see, you would never see a, a oh, I haven't seen it. So if, there, if it exists, it's crazy. But um, Dylan Roof juxtaposed to like a victim. Like you would never yeah. see that this moment where we kind of, you know, churchgoers, a deadly night. Like, you would just never see that kind mm-hmm. of framework. Um, no. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that's that's one of these moments. Um, but it's um, it's tricky because the liberal media, as maybe mm-hmm. Trump would call them, I think they have a – sometimes I think that happens because they do have a side and they're trying to hide it. And I think that's dangerous. You can know that you feel a particular way and you can report a certain way and you can lay out the information a certain way. And I think sometimes they're trying so hard to say, no, we don't really have a side or we don't know that it comes out in those types of decisions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's what I said, I think, led to some of the Charlottesville, right? Mm-hmm. Every paper mm-hmm. published these really dramatic front page images. Mm-hmm. And I think the Times in some ways was like, we're above that. Even though another read of that is that you're hiding white nationalism by not highlighting it. I mean, I was also told by someone at the Times that that particular, that so, you know, in Charlottesville, the original article, the Charlottesville article is like on the right hand. Mm -hmm. That's where the Times places their main story Hmm. in that right segment. But he was like, the mistake they made is that they didn't put the photo on the side. Yeah. 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 And then just too small, given the, given how loud that image is it was mm-hmm. it just also in a, in a photo sense it didn't it didn't make sense because mm-hmm. it's like if you don't have that image on the front page don't put it on there at all if it's not going to be big so how do these decisions get made on the one hand journalists writers and editors and photographers are professionals who've learned and internalized a set of protocols for how to do their work most effectively They follow style guidelines for language. They gather sources. They learn to write leads in certain ways. They learn to seek balance, right? The same way we all learn our trades. On the other hand, though, these protocols, even if they're designed to be as transparent and unbiased as possible, establish the framework for what counts as news and how stories get told in the first place. It got me thinking about what we would call the political economy of news, how control of resources, you know, money and power, impacts the way a private media system like ours performs, either directly or indirectly, like in the form of standard practices and protocols. For Alexander, though, it's not just an issue of an abstract ideological frame that drives these kinds of stories. It's also the concrete work of wealth and influence. 
But the question, I guess, is is who who set up those protocols? Yeah. Who set up the protocols, right? And this is when we get to the institutional argument. Yeah. Who set up the protocols? Who created these kind of filters and these frameworks for us in the first place? You know, the newspapers are also owned and run by the wealthy that are more likely to be in cahoots with Kavanaugh than they are a Michael Brown type character or, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's some of it. I think the, the question I always has is, is who who sets forth the frameworks, which puts my work in a weird place, right? Because they're like, if your if your critique is about the institution, then how do we fix that? And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's if I'm invested in that so mm-hmm. much as I'm interested in how maybe I'm first of all interested in bottom up change. I don't believe in top down change. That's just kind of crazy to me. Um, but is I think that if you can start to get people to individually feel like they have a set of tools. Um, to think through a number of these media challenges, I think that, that that's like half the work. If I'm not just going to read an mm-hmm. article and be like, yeah, this guy was Tulsa man and this guy was this Lebanese dude. If I'm, if I'm asking myself why in this particular moment are those phrases or those titles important? Um, so, yeah, the framework is, it's, you know, who made it? Yeah, I, I, I think that's important, especially if we're considering a framing and I'm, I'm going back to um, the quote you mentioned earlier from Omi and Manon, right, thinking about how media frames the way that we think, and right, they also have work that talks about racialization, and we can think about like the white racial frame and things like that, and how it um, is so ingrained in the manner in which we think and how we report the news and how we engage and even the language that we choose to use. And so I'm, I'm thinking about in our in our classes, um, and I'm not too familiar with our journalism classes, but just in general from my conversations with students, there is this conversation about we we talked about this earlier, right, about being objective and about, you know, showing both sides to the story and, like, checking your biases at the door. But I'm wondering how much that actually happens um, if we don't teach students how to critically engage and understand the biases that they might have, right, and the way that they unintentionally and intentionally frame stories without even realizing it. If we're just shooting to be objective without acknowledging that we are incredibly subjective beings who are framed and primed to think in particular ways, then I don't know we actually get to it. And I just see your work happening over and over and, mm-hmm. and over again. So my question from that soliloquy um, is actually what advice would you have for either like a journalism student who's attempting to navigate their, like who maybe wants to do um, an analysis or an annotation of their own writing? Mm-hmm. Um, or how would you, what advice would you have for somebody who's teaching journalism or like a media studies class to help their students begin to yeah. understand this space? Yeah. I'm, I think the activity, and so one of the reasons that counter narratives is so large and public, and it doesn't, I don't think that's the only iteration of the work, but that was mm-hmm. one of the goals and the scale, um, is that the hopes is that people who maybe weren't from the same backgrounds or weren't hanging out together or were hanging out together um, could have this opportunity to look at something and reflect on it mm-hmm. um, together. Um, and I've previously taught counter narratives in a class, and we were looking at an article about the Indian pipeline protest. Um, and surprisingly, it was like the most racially diverse class I'd ever been in. And I was like, Is this, was this planned? Um, but what I found is that some students were offended by certain terms that students didn't find anything wrong with. And it was a perfect opportunity for the student who didn't see anything wrong with it to say, what's wrong with it? Because mm. one student was super upset about the use of the word Indian. Um, One student says, I think Native American is an appropriate term. Um, And so 
I think why race becomes so difficult to talk about sometimes um, is that, especially amongst young kids, right, is that you have minority students and then sometimes you have white students and then there's a group of students that feel more at blame mm-hmm. um, or that or they feel guilty mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. feel defensive. Um, and I think with counter-narratives, some of it is is that there's this creative activity that you can put forth where people can all kind of question things um, and have a contribution. It was in a class yesterday. Someone had a question about the photo. Like, it, it turned out to be a white guy. He says, I don't understand. We're talking about all these white men and all their property, but we don't see what that looks like. We just see a photo of all the Native Americans standing around. And, so, you know, and someone else had another um, response. And sometimes those things are really deeply personal, mm-hmm. and they're not always additive, um, but there's a forum created, and I think it teaches people to kind of consider things. Um, when I'm self-editing, um, I ask myself what my motivation is, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that means I catch everything, right, mm-hmm. because I may not be aware of something, but I have caught some things. <laughs> you know, I've caught myself making a photo larger when I need to, mm-hmm. or using a phrase that actually wasn't, wouldn't pass a journalism test of, mm-hmm. like, can you use that? Um and so I think a lot of it is about questioning and editing and, and getting other people to look at something and getting feedback. Um, but another thing that can make it hard, and I don't necessarily know the solution to this, is that because frameworks are often set by the dominant racial group, white groups, um, I think, and editors sometimes are white, um, there's not always space for other language and terms that communities use. Um, and I think that just as much as we need to check and catch bias in journalism, we also need to know that as readers, we're supposed to learn. And if we don't know everything that we see written about, it doesn't mean that it's incorrect or Mm -hmm. should be changed or that there's a synonym. Um, And so I think there has to be room for people who are teaching journalism. The best thing to do is to find out, to learn more about those communities and learn more about those terminologies. Um, And I feel like I've seen this where you know, oftentimes those racial tropes are, people rely on those. Mm-hmm. What was that? Um, one about Viola Davis in the New York Times that says she's, um, while not classically beautiful. Yes. And this is one of those yes. moments. Or um, the angry black woman mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. trope that was used for, I think, Shonda Rhimes. Mm-hmm. There are these moments where it's like the reason you get all this pushback is you're relying on these. There, there are other phrases for those things that, that you may be labeling something else. And so I feel like I see a lot of um, editors relying on those things rather than making space for new mm-hmm. phrases phrases or terms that maybe you might need to ask a black woman about or you may need to ask a black student about. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think, I don't capture all of those things in counter-narratives, but I think the lesson sometimes for editors is that that's, that's mm-hmm. what you do, that you have to expand. And I think that's the unfortunate thing about kind of having this dominant framework is that very easily we all kind of know, oh, I know what an angry black woman is. And so it's mm-hmm. easy to go with that. Yeah. It, it's easier than you come and go with something else. It's easier for that, for that to happen. So, I want to thank Alexandra Bell for her time and her generosity in talking to us. We're going to switch gears slightly now, though, and... Leanne and I are going to talk about the process of getting Alexander here and the experience of her visit because it brought up a lot of issues institutionally and personally that we think are important to address. (laughs) 
I have to say, when I first started thinking about Alexandra visiting DePaul, it was because of a piece in The New Yorker that Mm -hmm. I'd seen online. And I immediately thought, I think this is someone who should talk to our students. And I'd love to see her work. I reached out to her, and she was immediately pretty open to the idea. Mm -hmm. And we started the negotiation Mm -hmm. of trying to get her work here and her here. And it was pretty easy, frankly, um, to, to work it out. So the elephant in the room. Yeah. Here's the story. Alexandra Bell came to DePauw and her artwork didn't. Yeah. And that was not her choice. No. So we have to address this because here we were talking to her and and yet DePauw, um, we chose not to bring it. And with full disclosure, DePauw has gone through a series of racist incidents on Mm -hmm. campus. I will say not unlike other college campuses, we are not alone in this. No, but we have many our partic- colleges are grappling with this. Yeah, yeah, and we have our particular version of it. Mm-hmm. And it has troubled us to a great degree. This moment was one where, speaking for myself, I thought this, is, this work will help, maybe. This work will be part of the discussion and then it wasn't. Yeah, it had the it had the propensity to open a dialogue or to continue, right? Yeah. These conversations that we're attempting to have on campus and being honest and being vulnerable and being willing to talk about the moments and spaces where we're at our best and where we aren't. I think this was a, a moment of recognizing where institutions sometimes gather around themselves in order to safeguard themselves mm-hmm. from potentially difficult conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if we if we think about what has happened at DePaul over the last four years, right? So I, I can only go back so far in time in terms of like my institutional memory yeah. and thinking about the ways that we have grappled with and we have um, had to deal with clear, explicit racism and also implicit racism, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so we, we've had multiple moments where the veil that we, in some ways, all agree to um, and are complicit with that, like, deposit this beautiful, magical place that, you know, doesn't ever have to deal with any problem and like we're all just students and faculty and staff hanging out together. And then there will be these moments that rupture that space, Mm -hmm. right? There will be these moments that remind us that we are not removed from the reality of racism, right? And there are are other instances that have also happened, right? There's transphobia, queerphobia, anti-Semitism, right? That this is not to say that other things are not also happening, but Alexandra Bell's work is specific to race, which is why that's why my conversation is focused on that in this particular moment. And so we had moments where we had to grapple with that. And in grappling with it, we had, oh, that doesn't happen here. We don't need to talk about that. Talking about it will be divisive. It will cause more problems than if we just engage with it. And then on the other side we have, but if we don't talk about it, we don't engage with it, it doesn't go away and we can't heal from it, right? Like you don't ignore a cancer. You actually try to root it out, right? Like usually that's what you do, do. but you know, not everybody. And, And so I think, As we move through thinking about why this work wasn't brought here, we have to think about fear, right? And so it's that if this work came here and was posted in three different places, there was the possibility of defacing. There was the possibility Mm -hmm. of this makes me uncomfortable, this makes me angry, this upsets me, and I don't want to have to deal with it. This 
potentially could create unsafe spaces or unsafe moments for people of color having to engage with or see, right, potentially racist responses to it. But the choice to not bring it here for the safety of said people is a fallacy. That's not why we didn't bring it. And we can tell ourselves that that's why we didn't bring it, right? We yeah. can we can help ourselves feel better by saying we're protecting students. Well, this is me pontificating. Uh, we are protecting faculty and staff. We are protecting the community from a potential racist outburst because we don't know how we'll handle it. But we're not actually protecting anybody because every single day something happens. Yeah. And every single day people have to respond to it. Yeah. And, and, and I, this got me thinking because you turned me on to a book. You were mm-hmm. We were talking about something earlier and you turned me on to Charles Wright Mill's book, The Racial Contract, mm-hmm. which I listened to, by the way. I don't <laughs> nice. have time to read, but I have a long commute. So I listened to that. But that book brought home to me. It nailed down a lot of what we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is... Much of what we were grappling with, we thought, was kind of the maybe, maybe the breakdown of the social contract. Mm. But underwritten, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. underwrites that social contract is a racial contract. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. what we were not talking about. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to sort That's that veil to me. When I, when I read that book, mm-hmm. um, it really brought home to me what this was about. Yeah. And not safety. Yeah. Or a different kind of safety. It, it's, a, it's a different kind of safety. Yeah. So From, I highly recommend that book. Yeah. So then I want to get to another elephant in the room, mm-hmm. which was sort of elephant in the, um, it, it was an, the audience. It was an elephant in two rooms because yeah. it was an elephant in the audience and it was mm-hmm. an elephant in this room when we were interviewing Alexandra and you brought it up and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you noticed. Yeah. So when Alexandra gave her talk, which was amazing, um, by the way, uh, at the end of this talk, we open up for questions, as you always do, right? Like, what questions do you have, et cetera. And so we had a couple of questions from the audience. And what I noticed was that all of the questions from those who were white or white appearing were about the technical moments, right? Journalism, how do I ask hard questions? What should I do if I'm a journalist? And none of it attended specifically to her work, right? None of the questions, well, maybe one, one of the five questions yeah. actually grappled with or or thought about these counter narratives, right? And so Alexandra is here talking about implicit and explicit racism and the ways that she reframes and challenges the narratives that we have been sold, that we've been taught, that we have been tacit, right, in our engagement and complicit with our belief. And so her entire series reframes that, right? It's a counter-narrative. It pushes back on that and asks you to think about how you yourself may engage with those or might have believed it. And only one person out of at least five or six actively engaged with that with that work and actively engaged with what Alexandra is asking us to do and I I kind of sat back and I said like what's happening here why is it that we are so uncomfortable that after we have this amazing talk we can't address the reality of what's happening that we have to obfuscate that we have to like circumvent and go around and find questions that have nothing to do like 
she's not a journalist right now in like the traditional no. sense where she's working for a paper no. on a beat. Right? I don't think she ever has. <laughs> she no. might have gone to school for she journalism. She has a master's in it from an yeah. amazing school. Absolutely, right? And she pushes us to think yeah. about journalistic integrity. Yeah. And she pushes us to think about journalism. But asking her about what it means to be a journalist doesn't hit the mark. No, and here I was in this room doing mm-hmm. much the same thing. After you said what you said, I thought back to our interview and I thought, and then I listened back to it and I realized, oh, I asked her about things like what's a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. I asked her about objectivity and about Mm -hmm. design Mm -hmm. and about professionalism and professional training of journalists. I didn't ask her about race not once. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? Like I, and I don't think that's an excuse. I think it's just a statement, right? There's a certain level of discomfort that we have when we talk about race. And I think when you don't have to consistently engage with and think about it and talk about it, and it's not part of your everyday life because you're not racialized in a negative way, right? You're racialized in a positive way where you like race isn't a thing you think you have. I mean, you benefit from it, that actually having to talk about it actually having to think about it is hard because in that thinking and talking you have to challenge those belief systems that you've been taught right like you have to challenge that social contract that you've signed and you've agreed to where if i just don't talk about race it doesn't mean anything it doesn't happen it doesn't bother me and as soon as you start talking about it you violate the contract Mm -hmm. and you lose something yeah and so i'm like what but i'm wondering like what is it that you lose in realizing your complicity? To me, my complicity in that was sort of brought home when you acknowledged what, would hap- what happened in the, in the audience that night. And your question about what I lose is really I just think I lose my sense of um, safety on the one hand, mm-hmm. to put it that in those terms, but also my sense of myself as, as a non- well, no one wants to be a racist, right? Well. Well, some people do. <laughs> yeah. Let's admit it, folks. Some people do. Some people do. Um, I don't want them. to be a racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet I have to admit that for all the reasons that you just articulated, yeah. that is part of the, that is the culture I was brought into. Does that mean I'm out there actively promoting racism as a way of life? No. But racism is part of, the contract that I signed. Mm -hmm. And what I lose in acknowledging this is the sense, my sense of self as someone who is protected from that Mm -hmm. and who necessarily um, can feel good about benefiting from the contract that he did sign. Um, And it's a, it's a, in some ways it feels like a loss, but it's a good one. Yeah. It's a good loss. Right. Because it's it's I don't know. I, I, I can't pontificate about it because I'm still sort of grappling with it, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. Right. And this isn't meant to be a therapy session for me. Right. <laughs> this is just acknowledging this is in some ways just acknowledging the fact that here we were talking about mm-hmm. this woman's work mm-hmm. and I'm in the room committing the same sort of foul. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. But I and I I think I think that's actually the the power of her work. Yeah. Right. The power of her work is that she forces you in engaging with these panels to to ask yourself those questions, right? Yeah. And to and to grapple with the answers. And I think this is across the board, 
right? Because yeah. it's not just the well-meaning, you know, white person who doesn't want to ask this question that, you know, is grappling. Yeah. It's everyone, yeah. right? Because many people um, believed that these, you know, five young men, these five boys, right, really? Yeah. Like, both 16 and younger. 16 and younger. Right? Um, were, were violent, you know, criminals weren't human and deserved the death penalty. Like, yeah. they bought into the pathologization, right, yep. of blackness that is woven throughout the media so that it's it's not something that you really have to question or think about or challenge. Like, that's just mm-hmm. what that's just what it is. And that's exactly what Alexandra would be doing, right, mm-hmm. saying, like, okay, yeah, we need to think about how we tell these stories. Right. And, and, and in asking us to do that, we have to be really honest. And I think it also makes us consider the other news that we engage with. I hope so. And, and, and the, the narratives we, that we are engaging in and how we might reframe, right? Or create a counter narrative yeah. to, to what's out there. Can we, can we create our own counter narratives? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay. Well, that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. I'm JNP. I'm Leanne Gomez. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Our show was written and produced by me and Leanne with technical assistance and web coordination provided by Chris Newton. Modern Media is a production of DePaul University and the Polium Center for Contemporary Media. For more information about Alexandra Bell and her amazing work, you can visit our website, which is www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is at media underscore podcast. You can subscribe and download Modern Media on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. And make sure to leave us a review and let us know what you think. Our theme music was written and performed by the Monroes, and additional music was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.